All right, well, again, welcome to Hope Lord. I'm back, my back, I'm back, I'm back. All right. Uh, welcome to Hope Lower Town. So we uh, last week wrapped up our, our summer series, uh, part, part of it, eight weeks that we did with looking at uh, stories in stained glass. And we are going to be starting this new series called What's in a Name? And uh, we're going to be looking specifically at, uh, at the church and names uh, of the church that we uh, are given in scripture. And so uh, that's why I want to be, we're going to be doing that for, for five weeks. And then we'll be uh, jumping into our fall, our fall series, uh, which off the top of my head is, uh, is it Hosea? Hosea is what we're doing next. So uh, what's in a name? Uh, a lot of you know that uh, back in the day, uh, I was a, uh, uh, an actor. Um, I only got paid once uh, in Chicago for, for a play. Uh, your good man, Charlie Brown, I was Linus. Sucked my thumb and carried a blanket around. That was a different lifetime ago, I feel. And, uh, but I remember, though, in college, uh, I had the privilege of, of being John Proctor in The Crucible. And you may not know it, but uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder, uh, they uh, did the play in a movie. And I remember my, my uh, director, I'd never seen the play before. I'd never seen the movie. And, and he told me, don't watch it. You know, I want you to develop your, your own character whatever that means. And so the play, after the play was over, then I went and watched the play, the movie, and I realized I wish I would have watched the movie because then I could have acted like Daniel Day-Lewis instead of me, and it would have been a little bit better. And so I was going to put a picture up there of me acting, but you probably wouldn't even, even recognize me anymore. Um, not that you knew me back then, uh, but it all comes back to me. All right. Here's a quote. Uh, this is from Arthur Miller. He is the author of uh, The Crucible. This is a line, though, that John Proctor is giving. And John Proctor is being accused of being a witch. And, if, and, and, and this has happened in the Salem Witch Trials. And during the Salem Witch Trials, if you were accused of being a witch and you denied it, and you said, no, 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 I'm not a witch, they would kill you. Uh, that was the proof that you weren't a witch was if you died. Right? They would tie you to a board. They'd throw you into a river or a lake. And this is true. This, this happened. And if you sank, then you were vindicated. It was, then you were not actually a witch. But if you floated... Now you're going to be tried as a witch um, and go to prison for it. Didn't make any sense. And so this is what's happening, right? It's, it's a witch trial. So the, the, all these people are saying, oh, they're a witch and they're a witch and this person's a witch and, and there was nothing you could do about it. There's no defense. Well, uh, John Proctor sees his friends being hung and being killed, being crushed with, with rocks and all these different things. And so he is accused, uh, this main character is being accused of being a witch and uh, and there's this scene where he's standing in the court and he finally says, I'd rather have my life. I don't want to die. So I will say, yes, I am a witch and therefore save my life. And there's this scene, though, where they say, okay, you need to sign this piece of paper to declare that you are a witch and then we'll nail it to the church door. And, and so the very, very passionately, this line, I'm not going to read it like that because it would freak you out and I would start crying and get emotional. It's kind of so... But every time I think about what's in a name, what's in my name, I, this, this line always comes to mind. They say, why won't you sign it? Sign this piece of paper. Sign this confession. And this is what he says, because it is my name. Because I cannot have another in my life. Because I lie and I sign myself to lies. Because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang. How may I live 
without my name. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name. And then he dramatically tears the confession apart, and then they hang him anyway, sir. There's something about a name. It's powerful, right? Maybe you were told that as a kid growing up, you know, before you'd leave the house, hey, don't forget your name is Silver, right? You, you represent something more than just who you are, right? That's my last name because, you know. You represent something more. It's not just about you, and that's something about a name, right? In our Western culture, we don't really put a whole lot of weight into it. A lot of my, my kids' names, there's a lot of family heritage, uh, but they don't, the name itself, you know, oh, Brian means little warrior or whatever, like that doesn't mean anything. Nobody cares about that stuff anymore, right? I have no idea what Brian means. <laughs> so this week's sermon, what does church mean? Right, we say the word all the time. Everyone, every English speaker knows the word church. And so I'm gonna be looking at specifically Matthew 16, looking at verses 13 through, through 20. What does church mean? And just a simple outline, just to kind of give you a heads up where we're going. We're going to look at a definition of church. And we're going to look at the biblical teachings, specifically from Christ on church, and then the implications and applications of this doctrine. So what does church mean? What comes to mind? Most often, people will think it's a building. Uh, we do this in our culture a lot. Um, that when I'm at a creator space and, and I say I'm a pastor, they say, oh, where are you, a pastor? And I say, oh, that church right there, right? It's, it's a building, that's okay. It's not a bad thing to say this building. And yet, if this church were to, you know, God forbid, burn to the ground this week, we would still have church next week. It might be in the parking lot, it might be at a different building or a different space, but the church cannot be burnt to the ground. Uh, empires and countries and people rise and fall. But the church remains. The church cannot be killed. The church cannot die. And when it's being persecuted, it actually grows all the more because it's not just a specific space. And yet that's okay to, to talk about as a space, right? It doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. Uh, but it's the English word of church. And usually that's what comes to mind. A second one, and most often is what we would think of is this. A group of people gathered together, having church together, right? That we do church, we have church, but we are the church is usually what we would think. And then the final way that we talk about the church is all Christians on this side of the cross. Anyone who is a believer in Jesus, that they are part of the capital C church. If you're ever reading and you come across uh, someone talking or writing about the church, uh, if it's a little C, it usually means the local congregation. Capital C is usually the church Catholic. I'm a Protestant, so we don't get to call ourselves the Catholic church. Catholic simply means universal. And so we're not the Catholic Church, we are the Church Catholic, right? We are, it's everybody of all time that's part of Big C Church. So that's, that's what usually comes to mind. But today specifically, I want to focus on that second point and look at just the meaning of the church and what it actually is, and it's this group of people. So let's quickly look at a definition of the church. Henry Barrow in 1580 said this, the church as it is universally understood, containeth in it all the elect of God that have been, are, or shall be. So right there, Henry Barrow is talking about capital C church, the church Catholic. But being considered more particularly, as it is seen in this present world, so now he's gonna change the gear here to a local church, it consisteth of a company of fellowship of faithful and holy people gathered together in the name of Christ Jesus, their only king, priest, and prophet, worshiping him, all right, being peaceably, 
and quietly governed by his officers and laws, keeping the unity of the faith, the bond of the peace, the love unfeigned. Great, thank you, Henry, for that. Obviously, our language has changed a little bit, um, and so it's been updated a little bit. Uh, a pastor by the name of Mark Dever, he's a pastor out in, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, in his book called The Church, The Gospel Made Visible, defines it as this. The church, local, little c, the church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in this world. So that's a definition. And yet we keep, I keep, using this word church, right? But that's just an English word that we have that was translated uh, from the original Hebrew and Greek. And so where do we get this word church from? The Hebrew word for assembly is qual, and, and Greek is ekklesia. That might be, maybe you've heard that before, that word, ekklesia. And it means assembly. It means to gather. It means to assemble, right? And it's the same word that is used in the Old Testament that is translated into the Greek as well. It's ekklesia. And if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that when Jesus walked the earth, when he quotes the majority of the quotes, passages that he, that he quotes from the Old Testament come from the Septuagint. So it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and you have this word, ekklesia, for the Old Testament word, qual. And it means assembly. It means to gather. It means to meet. And what you can see, even just in the actual word itself, that there's always been a connection between Israel and the church. That's a whole nother sermon, which we, at some day, will probably get to, but right now I'm not gonna dive into that a whole lot but we can see that there's an overlap here. That yes, the camp has changed, that we're no longer Old Testament, we're no longer a national Israel or a nation, that we are now all people gathered together and assembling together. And we can see that God's plan has always been for the corporate body, the assembly, not just the individual. I think it's a, an American, maybe we can go further back and it could be a Western way of thinking about a church, but that church is about me and my wants. Is the music what I like? Are the, the people what I want? Is, do they have the children's programs that I want? Do they have uh, whatever, fill in the blank. I always ask people when they, when they do uh, end up leaving if for any various reason, but if it's not like, hey, we're moving, uh, I got a new job or whatever, I always try to ask them if this was the only church within 100 miles would you still go here? And if the answer is no, then, then I want to know why. Right? What, what is it about this? Is it something that I did personally? Or is it just, it doesn't meet my expectations. It's not meeting my needs. and becomes a selfish thing. It doesn't meet my wants. And just based on the word, ecclesia, assembly, that it's about a corporate body. Yes, it's about me. It's both sides of the same coin. Yes, there's, there's things about me that is true, I need to have my personal faith in Christ, but like I've said a million times, I have a personal faith in Jesus, but it's never meant to be private. That there's a corporate aspect of just the word, ecclesia, of gathering together. Just fun fact, I don't know if you really care about this stuff, but the, that word ecclesia is used 114 times in the New Testament. And there's no other word other than ecclesia that's translated into church. It's the only word that we get. When we read the word church, it's assembly. Uh, the only other times that it's used that where it's not actually about the church or translated church is in Acts 7, 38 and Hebrews 2, 12. And that's to talk about the Old Testament, right? This, this 
That, that assembly, and they're talking about the Old Testament, which is translated correctly due to context. And then Acts 19, uh, it's used three times to talk about a riot. It's an, an unlawful assembly. Uh, so it's pretty clear that that's not the church that's doing this. It's causing a riot based on idolatry. Uh, one author says this, Roloff says, when he, this is Paul, speaks of ecclesia, Paul normally thinks first of the concrete assembly of those who have been baptized at a specific place. Ecclesiological, so maybe that's a fancy word for study of the church, but there, that's our kind of transliteration or the English way to, to use that Greek word of a, a ecclesia, ecclesiology, study of the church statements that lead beyond the level of the local assembly are rare in Paul's letters. That when we read the epistles from all of them, it's usually about a local church, not a larger big body, not the capital C church Catholic. It's usually about a local assembly. So that's the definition. That's where we're going. So there's power just in that word, in the name, assembly, ecclesia, church, assemble, gather. There's implications of that. That's not just about me. It's about us corporately. So that's kind of the working definition that we're going to have walking forward. So I want to look now at the biblical teaching on the church. And so I want to look at Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Matthew says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Son of man is an Old Testament name, language, for the Messiah, the promised one, the one that is, it was this, this big name. If you've been watching the, the Chosen, any Chosen fans out there, you're wearing a shirt that says Chosen. Is that, is that connected to the, no, okay. They don't own the corner on the, the word Chosen? Okay. Anyways, it's a, great, it's a great program. It's a great show. If you check it out, it's free. You can download the app. I don't, I'm not getting a plug from them, but. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. I am the son of man. And people go, whoa, 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 whoa. Those are fighting words. This is the, the Messiah is the son of man. It was this title that the Messiah has. So he's asked the question, who do people say the son of man is? Who is the Messiah? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Elijah's going to come back. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, he's asking all of his disciples, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah. You are the son of man, the son of the living God. And here we have Jesus with his response. The first time the word church, ecclesia, is used, that's not talking about the Old Testament assembly. Something's changing here. There's a new covenant that Jesus is about to do, a new assembly that he's going to establish. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not overcome it, I will give you the keys, the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he orders his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and yet it's one of the most controversial. 
And so hopefully I can shed a little bit of light on how most Protestants will interpret this passage and hopefully I can give some more clear clarity on that as to why it is. But Jesus says this, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's a fascinating phrase that Jesus says here. We uh, are part, this church is part of an organization called Mission 1618 that comes from this verse. And the idea is that we are a church and there's the gates of hell out there. This is not we, the church, are going to build our gates and protect ourselves from the kingdom of darkness. We get to go out and attack the gates of hell. They don't stand a chance. The gates of hell are not a weapon that hell is using. I actually just Googled it this morning. Can you use a gate as a weapon? No, you can't. Uh, I looked it up. Google said, no, it's not possible. There was one chance where you could, and it was in the board game or a card game called Dominion, uh, and you can play an action card that is a gate, and yet it is a defensive move. Even in a board game, you cannot use a gate as an active action to attack somebody. You can't do it. And it says here, the gates of hell don't stand a chance against the kingdom of light. It's a phrase that we've used a lot. I haven't used it in a while because last time I did, I made a, a, a drug joke somehow. We go into the kingdom of darkness and we trash the joint. We don't light up the joint. I misspoke last time. We go into the kingdom of darkness and we trash the joint. We get to do that. We are on the offense because we have the light that overcomes the world. So what does this mean though? What is this whole thing with Peter? My non-Protestant brothers and sisters will say that this is Jesus making Peter the first pope. That he's gonna build the church on Peter. Well, if we look at this, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar, okay? Anytime people start using Greek, and I know I already have this morning, Greek is Koine Greek. Uh, I took, I don't know how many credits I took in undergrad and seminary, but Koine Greek is simply simple Greek. It's just, it's, it's, it's just, anyone can understand it. It's common Greek. Koine Greek is, it's just a common language. It's not fancy, ooh, I know Greek. No, you know common Greek, which is not that big of a deal. I don't even know how to speak it. No, it's a dead language. If I go to Greece right now, I wouldn't be able to do anything. Uh, I might be able to read some old signs, and that's about it, okay? It would not benefit me at all. It's a language that we read. It's Koine Greek. So I'm not trying to get fancy. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm not the expert on this at all. But when we look at the language that's being used here that Jesus uses, this is what Jesus says. Peter, the name Peter is Petros, which means loose stone or a little pebble or a small rock. Okay, rock. Petros, Peter, means rock. But it means small rock. And then he says, but on this rock... He uses the feminine word, which is Petra, which is massive. It's a cliff. It's a mountain. So he declares something. You, Peter, are a little rock. But on this big rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. Not you're going to build my church, Peter. No, I'm going to build it. Why? Because I am the chief cornerstone. I am the rock. What is the rock? The rock is Peter just confessed that you, Jesus, are, are the Messiah. You are the promised one. And on that rock, on that truth, on that foundation, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is that I am, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, on that truth, I'm going to build my church. And nothing can stand against me. Not even the kingdom of darkness doesn't stand a chance. 
I will build my church. Matter of fact, Peter talks about this. If Peter ever wanted to say, no, 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 I'm the guy. Everything that's gonna happen moving from now on forward is about me and me being the first something, first bishop of whatever, then he could have said that. And a matter of fact, he says the exact opposite. So if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 8, we went through this past a couple of years ago. He says this, Peter, and coming to him, that is Christ, Jesus, as a living stone, stone here is not uh, Petra or Petras, um, it's, it's say, Thalos or something, it's a different, it's a different word. So he's not, he's not doing that, but he will, he will, I'll get there. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion or Jerusalem a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him, which as we know now is Jesus, will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, and here is a rock of offense, and here he uses that Petra. Again, that same word that Jesus uses, this massive rock, this foundational cornerstone. And as we know, just a couple of verses later, in verse 10, where he calls out the church, Peter does, and he says, you were once not a people. You once were not part of the assembly, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. John Walford says this, it was not Peter upon which the church would be built but upon the person to whom Peter had witnessed in his confession of faith, Christ, the son of the living God. Edwin Rice says this, the church does not rest on a quality found in Peter and in others like him. The church is not built on the confession of her members, her members make, which would change the effect into the cause, but by her confession, the church shows on what she is built. She rests on the reality which Peter confessed, namely the Christ, the son of of the living God. And again, context is really important because here we have Jesus saying, if this is it, Peter, I'm gonna build my church on you. You're gonna be my guy. Literally five verses later, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you are a stumbling block, right? You're, you're now a rock that's tripping me up. You do not know, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He's fallible, he's a human being. And the church cannot be established on a mere mortal, on a man. It can only be founded on the rock, the solid rock, which is Jesus Christ. All right, we've looked at the definition, looked at the biblical teaching. There's a lot more that could be said about that passage. But I wanna move on to the implications and, and applications of this. I mentioned this last week, and uh, this is true. This doesn't really pertain to anybody in here unless we're gonna go home and try to watch online. This is the last week uh, that we're gonna be doing online services. Live, live. Couple reasons for that, couple reasons. First off, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a lot of work, I'm just, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, it's a lot of setup, it's a lot of uploading and downloading all the different things, whatever. I'm not complaining about the work. 
if, if it were really blessing people, and if you're watching online, and then it's great. You're, you're either my Aunt Janet or my mom, uh, most likely. And so that's just, been, that's just been what's happening with online service. Aunt Janet, mom, I love you, uh, but we're done. We're done with this, all right? Uh, the, the, and a big reason, too, Nolan, he's not here this morning, but he does our website uh, of, all, of all the locations. And there's very few people that watch it live. We're the only location that's ever done a live service. Uh, downtown in Columbia Heights, they do a kind of pre-recorded thing and they do a premiere. Not planning on doing that. And the main reason is because the majority of people, if you miss a service, you listen to the podcast, uh, that you don't watch it. Uh, and so it's just, it just doesn't make any sense to do that. Secondly, uh, and it's, it's not a light, a light decision. This is something that uh, Josh and, and Paul and I have discussed about in length of, of are we going to get rid of this thing? Are we going to keep doing it? Um, but we really believe based on literally even just the word church that we want to keep assembling. And I know that might sound like I'm a little hypocritical because we obviously during COVID stopped and we were assembling online and meeting only. Uh, it was the best I thought of all the bad ideas that we had. Um, and so moving forward, uh, we're hoping to never have to do this again. And so I just want to let you know that just in the word, I think it means to gather, to assemble. And so if you're watching online, if you're at home, and come, come, please come back. All right, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, a little bit more implications of this idea of the church and why it's important to gather, to be together. Uh, this past, uh, well, Monday, um, I had the opportunity, it's a kind of a goofy picture, uh, I, was, uh, I had the opportunity to, to, this is Billy Graham's pulpit. I went down to Wheaton, Illinois, and uh, was able to, he traveled with this pulpit, uh, which is kind of funny to me. Um, it was really nice. I forget the company that made it, but it had lights and a clock uh, built into it. It was kind of cool. Uh, it was a museum at Wheaton College, and so Ed Stetzer was, was uh, giving uh, myself and a few others this tour. If you know Ed, uh, great. I'm not trying to name drop him. A lot of you probably don't know who he is, but he's the president of the college, and, and uh, we did this thing called Leading Through Trauma and Stress. And I honestly, though it was uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, was about how to coach you ultimately through what has been very traumatic uh, and stressful over the past 20 months. And I have never been more stressed in my life. <laughs> Sitting through that conference, they like taught us a breathing drill and I'm like, I'm just breathing heavy the whole, the whole time, like trying to just make it through it because I shouldn't have been at this conference, okay? The conference was for my superiors to go to that then to trickle down all this data about trauma and how to lead through stress to church planners. Well, I'm a church planner. I'm sitting there. I'm just getting it raw, and it was heavy. Uh, it was very heavy, but I learned, I learned a lot about, uh, I think, what we've been going through. And so... Um, there was a woman there, uh, Carrie Latisier, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce her last name, but um, she talked about uh, the soul, the leader uh, of leaders in church planting, and she talked about this, that in times of stress, I don't know why I have S capitalized there, in times of stress, uh, in times of stress, people need to move from isolation to intimacy. It's so easy that when we get overwhelmed or, or overcome with something to, to just kind of retreat, get in our own little cocoon, to, to run away, to I'm just need to get in my mind palace, uh, right? 
No, we, we need to be around one another. This, that's, we've, we have joked about this for years, but community is our middle name. And for the past 20, year, 20 years, last 20 months, we've been robbed of that. We have not been able to get together and to hang out and to rub shoulders with each other. And another aspect that I, that I was introduced to, this idea of hemoblind, it's a, it's a um, Norwegian term that, that means uh, blind, blind to my own backyard. You ever uh, traveled somewhere and just you go out and you're like, holy cow, this is a, just what a magnificent view. But if you lived there, after a while, it just kind of becomes the view, right? And you kind of forget how beautiful this thing actually is. We, we take our sight, we forget how awesome this thing is right in my own backyard. And that's our own church, it's our family that when we become isolated and we start thinking, ah, you know what, maybe the grass is greener on the other side. The statistic that Ed Stetzer shared was that 30% of, uh, or, or more, of people have left their church to go to other churches during the pandemic, 30%. And I think that statistically is true here as well. Interesting, uh, Dr. Eric Brown, uh, there, there's a lot of psychologists there using big fancy terms that right over my head. Uh, but it was very fascinating. He, he gave a lecture on brain science and stress and he talked about that if there's a, um, a drive-by shooting, for example, or some kind of shooting or whatever, it's, it's only for a moment. It only lasts for so long. Right? It's very traumatic, it's, it's stress-inducing. I can go into shock from this thing, but it ends. And usually, I can remove myself from the situation. And he repeated over and over this idea of the pandemic and racial tensions and, and religious tensions and political tensions and fill in the blank that we've really gone through over the past year. There's no end in sight. And that adds to the stress, the ongoing chronic stress. And he says that a lot of times there's a hurricane or something like that, uh, groups will, will rush into an area to try, to try to help. They try to get there within the first 24 hours to be able to offer help to somebody who's been, who's been really stressed out, gone through something traumatic. He said, but we can't do that and we can't get away from it. Go to any country in the world, guess what? All of these issues are still there. We can't run away from this, which adds to the stress. But then it was uh, Dr. David Wang, he gave a lecture on training pastors to deal with trauma in their congregation. He said this, that when you're in the midst of trauma, when you're in the midst of chronic stress, you can't rush in and get help because <laughs> we're all dealing with it. And so we're, we're constantly trying to fix this and, and I've tried to come up with solutions and answers and all these different things and I gotta do this and we gotta do this. Just take a step back. Let's love one another. Let's be there for one another and not be so quick to offer a solution and listen and care. One other uh, uh, psychologist who was there, his name was Dr. Chris Adams. Um, he shared this image of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders. This is in front of the Rockefeller Center in, in New York City, this particular statue. And Atlas, this idea of he's just straining, right? Under the weight of the world, he's carrying the stress. And I think a lot of us over the past year plus have felt like Atlas. I gotta care for my family. I've gotta, I've gotta put a, a good face on. I gotta, I gotta stuff my feelings down inside because other people are depending on me. I gotta keep doing this. Man, I lost my job, but man, I gotta just stress, right? And then he shared this picture. It's from St. Peter's 
cathedral. It's literally right across the street. It's a, it's a, a statue of, not baby Jesus, child Jesus. We can see he's holding the world gently, calmly in his hand. That these two images are just in complete contrast to one another. That we try to hold the weight of the world and Jesus is going, I got this. I got this. Another thing, and I, and I forget who it was that was talking about this. I believe it was Dr. Wang. Yeah, it was Dr. Wang and his lecture. I was talking about this idea of uh, was, uh, what, what relieved people of stress over the past 20 months. And he had a big term, and I forget the whole term, but it was this idea of author, author, uh, easy for me to say, authoritarianism in the sense of we like to go to the extremes, that over this past 20 months, the thing that brought people the most relief from their stress was to go to one extreme or the other. There's a reason why when you turn on the news, I don't care what channel it is, they hate each other and they hate whatever president or they hate whatever position anyone has to say about anything. And people eat it up. It's the one thing over the past 20 years that have given people a little bit of relief from their stress. I can trust in this thing, that if this thing were true, it'd all be good in the world. And that couldn't be more from the truth of what the, te- what the scriptures teach. It does talk about authoritarianism in the sense there's one thing that is good and true and should have complete authority over my life, and it's Jesus. That no matter how stressed I am, no matter how much of the weight of the world I'm feeling, I always get to remember Jesus has got this. And we get to encourage each other. We get to surround each other to assemble, to care about everybody. It's not just about me, and yet I need you. We need each other. I end with this last slide here, but we've talked about this before. That as a church, as, a, as our three locations that were governance team supported, that were elder led, uh, each location has their different elders. Uh, we share a, a governance team, we're staff run, we all have our different staff. But we're member mobilized. And over the past 20 months, we have kind of dropped that member mobilized thing. Uh, we haven't had opportunities for you to be able to serve the body. But now we do. And I'm asking you, I'm not asking you for help. I'm not going to beg and plead you, hey, get involved in your church. I'm not going to do that. I want you to want that. And we have some things that are coming up the next few months, I hope, uh, that, I, that I think we can all get part of, be part of, and, and really care for one another. But there's plenty of opportunities. That's hospitality, we're helping with the nursery, uh, greeting people, helping out, doing worship. And there's people in here who can sing and, and play instruments. Uh, don't let John uh, intimidate you. Uh, we can all play. An application, let me, let me ask you this. How can I help you? And that's the whole idea of member mobilized. I'm not, I'm not saying I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this. I want you to say, I want to do this, and I want to say, okay, how can I help you do that? How can I enable you? How can I empower you to do that? You say, I mean, I've had this thing on my mind. This just happened uh, at our downtown campus. There was some young people that said, hey, we want to start a young adult ministry. And Pastor Cora was like, great, do it. What, how can I help? Oh, you want me to advertise? Cool, I can do that. And they got going. Paul is actually going to be uh, teaching there tonight at, a, at an adult, young adult meeting. That's what we want. That's what I'm here for. Uh, to equip you for the ministry. So I want to help you. But secondly, this last year plus has been heavy. How are you resting in the ultimate authority of Christ? He is our ultimate authority. 
And we get to assemble, gather together, and be here for each other, knowing that he has established his church. And if we don't trust in him, we labor in vain. We're fighting against the wind. Doesn't make any sense. That we're in this together.